This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Our focus this morning in the summer playlist is Psalm 100. The focus is a very obvious one. It has to do with worship. The unfortunate truth is that in Christian circles today, worldwide, not just on our own nation, worship wars is a term that's increasingly understood and known. It's when people are arguing and have strong feelings opposing each other on how Christians are to worship. It has to do with music and musical instruments, of course, to a large degree. And you can hear the voices, ah, it's too old, or it's too new, or it's too contemporary, or it's too traditional, or it's, it's too worldly, or it's too boring. Or they're using the wrong instruments, or, or they should only use the instrument that God has commanded, and that is the human voice, back and forth. First, if we're going to ask ourselves about the best way of worshiping, let's listen to God. And so we turn our attention now to God's word, <clears throat> Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. For we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let us pray. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise. You never fail to keep your promises. We thank you that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see your love, justice, mercy, and victory. As we now meditate on Psalm 100, enrich our understanding of worship and move us to keep worship as a big part of our lifestyles everywhere we go. Amen. Well, now that I've read Psalm 100, <laughs> you know as well as I do that we don't have to hire a detective agency to figure out what the main focus is. Worship and worship of the Lord. And that sounds simple enough. But pretty soon when you have discussions and these discussions turn to arguments about how a person is supposed to worship, that's where it gets complicated real quickly. Oh, and there's explanations for that. Here's some of the reasons given to help explain why we have the confusion around us. 
This is from anthropologists and sociologists and uh, people who studied the people and groups of people and culture. Number one, with the increased life expectancy, the church is challenged to serve four, and some say five, living generations. And two, many people say three even, of those generations were not raised in the church. Obviously, people have different experiences and different backgrounds and different likes and dislikes. Point number two, the demographers say that there are now more than 50 different lifestyle groups with their own cultures, lifestyles, and musical preferences. They're just not on the same page at all. And point three, musically, New instrumentation has followed the birth of rock and roll, and with, its, with it, new styles of music are now competing with each other for popular acceptance. Now, most studies say that up until about 80 years ago, it wasn't that way. Before the end of World War II and the major changes in culture society that took place, most people were basically on the same page with their likes and their dislikes. But now they say that culture reinvents itself every five to 10 years. It's always a moving target. And this, of course, isn't the first time for this. I believe that many of you already know this, but that when the organ or keyboard was brought into the church initially, <laughs> Oh, people thought that was blasphemous. That's blasphemy because the organ up to that time was basically used for entertainment purposes in theaters. And you just don't take what is secular and drag it into the holy, sacred worship centers. And of course, many people, they're going to leave the church sooner the better. That leads us to ask a very important and a practical question, doesn't it? And here it is. What is the best kind of worship? I pray that you will be thinking about this as we work our way through Psalm 100. What is the best kind of worship? And if we notice that, we notice that the way that Psalm 100 is, is um, uh, organized, you have invitations and encouragements to worship, and they're immediately followed by reasons or the basis for that worship. Here, let's take a look. <clears throat> you have the first section there. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. But then notice the underlined portions. There's the basis. There's the reason. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And then in the same psalm, very next verses, they say they do the same thing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Why? For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generation. 
The word worship in English comes from an old English word, worthship. That is a kind of a worthiness or being honorable. And so worship is basically ascribing and acknowledging that God is worthy of our thanks and praise and that he is to be honored because of who he is and what he has done. You have a great example of that in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 5, when the heavenly multitude is focusing on Jesus, the Lamb of God slain for us, they give us this great example. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You see, it's something that that believers want to do, not something that they have to do. And that's an important point, because you have a lot of Bible students who read Psalms like Psalm 100, and you have the words, shout for joy, worship the Lord, come before him, and so forth. And they say, grammatically, do you notice that those are imperatives? These are commands, And so we're just to obey God and do that. I agree that grammatically those verb forms are all imperatives, they're commands, but it's more like a parent taking a child to an ice cream shop and then saying, choose your favorite flavor. Yeah, grammatically it's a command. But it's really a gracious invitation. It's an encouragement to enjoy yourself to the full. And that's what you have in context every have you have these emphasis on these psalms. And so hopefully it's rather obvious to all of us that worship is not to get God to do things for us. We are not trying to sweet talk him into anything, but rather... It's exactly the opposite. It's because he's already done things for us. True Christian worship is not done in search for God's favor, but it is in response to God's love. So that takes us back to the main question for today. What's the best kind of worship? Well, first of all, it's worship in response to God's love for us. And that truth explains why in the history of the Christian church, some of the greatest teachers that the Lord has given to the church have always emphasized that worship begins long before you come into some kind of a worship assembly. No, worship begins when you you focus on the mighty, saving deeds of God, his love, his faithfulness to his promises. And that's when the Holy Spirit begins to do his miraculous work of changing attitudes, of bending human will. And that's when there's a desire to thank and to praise him. And uh, this, well, maybe it's best said this way. In reality, Christians, believers do not go to church to start worshiping. They are, by God's mercy and the Holy Spirit's work, they are worshipers 
gathering together to continue their worship together. And if we get that, we get an awful lot about the tone and the texture of Christian worship. Look again at the reasons that Psalm 100 gives to explain why we worship God. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we, we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. The vocabulary is primarily the, the language of redemption rather than merely creation. It is not the power, the brute force of God that is here most emphasized. It is his goodness, his love, his faithfulness to all of his promises. Love gives birth to love. It is a miracle. It's an expression of new life in Jesus Christ. Anthropologist Margaret Visser cited an influential study that was done with parents striving to train children. And it had to do with three kinds of greetings. Hi. Bye-bye. Thank you. And what they found, that children on their own, about 25% of the time, one out of four, will voluntarily say hi or bye. And about Thanksgiving... 7%. It just isn't in our DNA after the fall into sin. We're not thankful people. By, that's not the way we're wired. That's not our default setting. And then in that same study that the anthropologists have come up with, they then studied parents who are actively training the children to be different. And the same expressions, hi, Goodbye, thank you, were used. And they found out that parents, about 25 to 30% of the time, had to continue to tell their children, say hi, say goodbye. But 51% of the parents had to say, say thank you, say thank you. Again, it just emphasizes that same point. It's not, it's not natural. It's supernatural when the Holy Spirit brings us to desire to do that. So, what's the best kind of worship? Well, we go back to the basics. First of all, it's worship in response to God's love for us, but then it's worship that expresses our love for God, which is the supernatural gift that we have received from him. Now, let's take a look at the part of the psalm that gives more people some degree of discomfort rather than just joy. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. It's the mention of a place. It's a mention of a, of a location. It's geography, it's latitude and longitude. And that's what upsets some people. And sometimes they ask the question this way. 
Do God's people need to worship at specific places, like churches or temples or worship centers? Not a bad question. And there's an old saying, you've perhaps heard it, for every complex question, there's usually a very simple and a very stupid answer. And that's the truth here. So look at it again. Is it necessary, is it important to God that we gather at one place, a certain building? Well, first of all, Psalm 100 and all of the Psalms are part of the Old Testament. They were originally written to God's people who were living their entire lives under the Old Covenant, that is the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. And a central worship center there from Deuteronomy chapter 12 onward, it had to do with God recording his name at a specific place, and that place became Jerusalem, and that's where Solomon's temple was built, where Zerubbabel, or the second temple, was built to replace that one after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The central worship place is still there. That's Old Testament. Once you get to the New Testament, you know what the whole... What the Holy Spirit and all of the apostles say about a specific location, that's it. Nothing. It just is, since Jesus Christ finished the work of the anointed one, the Messiah, all of those ceremonial aspects are matters of Christian freedom. God has neither commanded nor forbidden it. But there is a repeated and an unmistakable set of examples and encouragements in the New Testament. You just can't miss it. And that is that believers are encouraged in their worship lives, not only privately, but also when they do it publicly, strive to do it as groups, but especially do it in ways that benefits other people. That's the key. I think you've heard it before, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's a great example from the New Testament, probably the most familiar from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As you and I approach the last day and the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, mutual love, support, mutual encouragement are always high priorities. But simply being in church, just that, there's no particular advantage. Now, about 100 years ago, there was a very colorful, <laughs> memorable Christian preacher in the United States by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was once asked about the importance of going to church specifically, and he gave a great answer that's still being repeated today. He said, just going to church will no more make you a Christian then going into your garage is going to make you an automobile. And that's well stated. Oh, we could update it a little bit. Going to church will no more make you a Christian than going to an airport is going to make you an airplane. 
But of course, then Christians have added that. But if you are already, by God's grace, an airplane, you know where you belong. It's a matter of attitude again, very important. And so what kind of worship is the best kind of worship? Well, it's worship in response to God's love. It's worship in, that expresses our love given by the Holy Spirit for God. And it's worship that expresses love for our neighbor. Keep looking at those main points. They kind of give us direction or a starting point if we are confronted by the, the worship wars that are going on. Since quality worship is in response for God's love to us, you know, point number one, we can thank and praise him for the gift that he's given to us in love called music. Because of so many disagreements about the kind of music or the kind of musical instruments, we have to go back to the basics. God gave every single one of us the gift of music. But he hasn't said, this is good, this is bad, this is mediocre, this is wise, this is foolish. That is entrusted to us with God-given wisdom to like or dislike for the best reasons. The one necessity in worship, with all of the freedom that we have, is that it faithfully communicates the word of God. If it doesn't serve that purpose, as beautiful, as gorgeous, as emotionally productive as it may be, it doesn't really belong in worship. Here, here's, here's a true story to kind of illustrate that. A Christian woman not long ago went to Central Africa to try to be of value to the missionary team there. And one of her first days there, she visited uh, a medical mission building and uh, a structure, uh, a place where they would take care of the, the physical needs. And as she was at that medical mission place, she heard... African women singing outside, and it was gorgeous. I mean, the voices, the blending, the harmony, the, the, uh, the tempo. Oh. And she said, I want to take that back to home with me so we can put it into our worship services too. We'll just have to translate it into English, and we're okay. So she asked a nurse there, Give me the word so I can get that and take it back. And the nurse just kind of stared at her and then said, if you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. <laughs> Not a bad subject, but it wasn't really going to build up a relationship with the Heavenly Father particularly. And that was the point. Music in worship is to declare God's worthiness through his son, Jesus Christ. And then look at the second point there. That it involves expressing love for God in response to his love. Again, personal preferences should be stated courteously, kindly. But remember this, that personal preferences, along with culture, change. And they sometimes change rather rapidly. But even if they change slowly, they're going to change. 
Here's a letter that a Christian wrote to her pastor. I feel that I know appropriate church music when I hear it. And last Sunday's new hymn, if you want to call it that, sounded like a sentimental love ballad that one would expect to hear crooned in a saloon. If you insist on exposing us to rubbish like this, don't be surprised if many of the faithful look for a new place to worship. The saloon song, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. <laughs> That's how culture can sh shift. Oh, and here's another letter that a Christian gentleman wrote to a pastor after the introduction of new hymn. What is wrong with the inspiring hymns which we grew up with? When I go to church, it is not to be distracted with new hymns. Last Sunday's what was particularly unnerving. The tune was absolutely unsingable. The hymn... What a friend we have in Jesus. They were living in a certain culture, but that changes, and we do well to remember that. But if it is given in love for God, love for our neighbor, it's worship. Someone gave this good advice. If you are in a worship war conversation, the best thing that you could do or encourage other people to do, go to church with the person that is singing or that is, is worshiping at a different kind of a place, sit next to them, and then listen and watch as that Christian brother or sister worships the Lord. And that will remind you of what's really important, not the style but the worship and what the Holy Spirit has done. Because it's never about the newest, the greatest, the uh, most popular song on the charts. No, true worship is not about a song. It's about a son. It is about the doing and the dying of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And keeping our main focus on that rather than our emotions, is what it's all about. In response to God's love, let us love him and let us love our neighbor. Amen. And let us pray. Gracious Lord, you gave us the best. You gave us yourself. Move us to give you our best in our worship at any time and in any place. Keep your love for us and our love for you and for those around us right in the middle of it all. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.